Hi, everyone. Before we start the show, a quick reminder. We are having our first ever Family Ghosts live show here in Brooklyn on September 13th, and we would love to see you there. The show is going to feature live music and storytelling from Family Ghosts story editor Michaela Bly, NPR's Ophira Eisenberg, a sneak preview presentation of the stories for season two, and a whole lot more. Tickets are just $15 with promo code GHOSTS, and they are going fast. Get yours at familyghosts.panoply.fm, and thank you for all your support. Greetings, Ghost Family. Welcome back to the Fam Go Show Summer Bonus Episode Series, coming to you once a month as we gear up for the launch of our second season of Stories. We have, somehow, arrived at the precipice of September, which means season two is so close, I can already taste the acrid tang of late-night coffee from the office kitchen here at Family Ghosts HQ. In fact, it may or may not be rather late at night as we speak, though at the moment I'm opting for a little tawny port rather than coffee. So, cheers. I'm working late tonight because we're at the part of the process that I personally find the most treacherous, taking the reams of tape we've been collecting for each of our episodes and trying to stitch it together into a compelling story. A piece of trivia for any of you who were fans of our series premiere, The Family Jewels, the first draft of that script was 73 pages long, which, according to the formatting system we use, would have timed out at about three and a half hours. As you can imagine, it is a tense and twisting road from there to the roughly hour-long episodes we aim for in our final drafts. And while it can be excruciating to let go of moments of tape that felt revelatory in the moment of recording, like that song by Kayla's friend Jeff I played you in our first bonus episode, it's also one of the most thrilling challenges of this work, finding a way to relate the experience of searching for the truth behind a family's legend that feels complete and gratifying as a narrative, knowing all the while that you'll never be able to tell the whole story. It's one of the many reasons I am grateful for our talented team of producers and editors, as well as, when necessary, a comforting nip of Graham's 20-year tawny. Speaking, however, of revelatory moments that don't make the cut, that is exactly the reason we created our recurring bonus episode segment. Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. This week on Wild Card Wednesday, a dropped coil in King City and an unforgettable dinner at a Mexican restaurant in Monterey, California. But first, for this month's episode, producer Jennifer Lai sat down with graphic novelist T. Bowie to talk, among other things, about exactly this challenge, using your own life and that of your family to create art that connects with people and hopefully makes them reconsider their relationships with their own family. I have had the privilege of going on several reporting trips with Jennifer this summer. And one of the things I find remarkable about her is her willingness to throw herself headlong into storytelling challenges without the kind of hesitation and hyperventilation that I tend to experience. As an example, a few months ago, we found ourselves in need of permission to visit a prison to interview a source. 
While I was busy marveling at the narrative opportunity presented by this development and panicking about the logistical dilemmas, Jennifer was working the phones at the governor's office, getting us connected with the necessary state officials to be granted access. And a few weeks later, we found ourselves at the prison, sitting across the table from our source, rather than settling for unreliable phone tape for this critical portion of our story. Big stories require big commitment. And that's exactly the sort of tenacity and perseverance Jennifer recently discussed with T. Bui. Soon after that trip back to Vietnam, our first since we escaped in 1978, I began to record our family history, thinking that if I bridged the gap between the past and the present, I could fill the void between my parents and me. And that if I could see Vietnam as a real place and not a symbol of something lost, I would see my parents as real people and learn to love them better. That's author T. Bowie reading me an excerpt from her 2017 graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do. The book documents her family's escape from South Vietnam in the 1970s and their struggle to adapt to life in the U.S. I asked them endless questions about their lives, the war, and the country that was once home. Ma, always the practical one, would rather we laughed more or went shopping together. But she humors me with stories and then asks, What should we do about dinner? I don't want to talk about dinner when there are so many important things we haven't said to each other. I suppose for my mother, I love you sticks in the throat. I remember one time I told my mom that I loved her and she just kind of said thank you. <laughs> but, <laughs> Awkward but she, much? <laughs> but she meant, you know, she meant I love you. You right. know, I, I think she was really touched. Yeah, yeah. She, she just, you know, doesn't receive it in that way. <laughs> T's work speaks to me so deeply, both as a writer and journalist working with family history, and also as an Asian American. I just felt like that was something that you had taken from my life, and I was so surprised to find it in someone else's book. It's like you don't say I love you in right. that way. Yeah, in um, fact, there's a there's a book, a, mem- a memoir by another Vietnamese-American writer called I Love Yous Are For White People. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of this battle that I have within myself, like this Chinese side and this American side. Mm-hmm. Like the Western side of me thinks that way. Like I'm like, I don't want to talk about things like, you know, how much my rent is going up next month or... You know, did I see the sale at TJ Maxx Mm -hmm. when I don't even know what it was like to have me and what it was like to move here and not know anyone? My parents came to Canada from Hong Kong in the 1970s, so around the same time as T's family, but under completely different circumstances. My parents weren't refugees fleeing Vietnam, and they weren't evading war. But even though our family histories are totally different, T and I felt some of the same anxieties while we were growing up. I was always concerned about being the lame second generation, you know? And I think that this is a common uh, feeling in children of immigrants or children of refugees or children of survivors of any great trauma, is that you feel like the lesser generation, like something has gotten watered down and you're basically just a big jerk. Um, (laughs) What you're saying, I feel it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Um, (sighs) But for me, Uh, crossing the threshold into parenthood by having a really difficult labor um, and then 
a really difficult week following that labor. That was the only time in my life up, un up until then that I had been asked by life to step up. And I realized that I could. And then I realized that if I had been in my parents' shoes, I, I think I might have stepped up as well. One of the most powerful things about T's book is how her introduction into motherhood changed her perspective on her parents' history. When she was pregnant with her son, she went back to Vietnam with her mother in order to do visual research for the novel. And being physically there, revisiting all the places where her parents had lived, and knowing her mother had left Vietnam while she was pregnant herself, made something inside of T start to shift. It made them a little bit more human to me. It made me realize that, oh, you know, we actually respond to our times. So our parents are not made of something different than we were. Mm. Their times were different, and they called for different measures. So I think like that, that brought me closer to them. Um, and so I had to, I had to honor the, the, the difficult experience that I had had <laughs> that made me feel like, oh, you know, actually I'm, I am something like my parents. It sounds like that was a realization that took a while. Like, I don't know if you would have had that realization without giving birth to your I son. I don't know, not, probably not. And I and actually think it helps me now um, to not freak out uh, sometimes at the news or, you know, these mm -hmm. times, because they are really tumultuous times all of a sudden. Um, yeah. But I realize, you know, the world has ended many times over in different parts of the world and people made it through. Right. T describes her book as a big story of international politics juxtaposed with a very personal family story. She told me she's always been troubled by the way the Vietnam War is presented in America. I really love uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen because he, he really articulates uh, so many of these thoughts that I have, but a, in a mm -hmm. much more clear way. He wrote in uh, Nothing Ever Dies, um, his nonfiction book, that the U.S. Uh, in, in real life lost the Vietnam War, but continues to, to win the, 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 the soft war. The, the, in, the, in the telling of the Vietnam War, the U.S. has made itself the victor in the sense that it is always the main character in that narrative. So even though Let's see, let's see, over 55,000 Americans died in that war, and over 3 million Vietnamese <sighs> died in that war. But in the stories that you hear, you don't even get to know any of the names or the stories of the Vietnamese people. It's usually mm -hmm. always a, an American soldier. And that does something to how people understand what that war w meant to people. You know, it was a very... The problem is so egregious that, like, my my goal was really quite simple. It was just to replace the stereotypes of the Vietnamese bar girl and the, you know, the gook who didn't really speak Vietnamese or any actual language mm -hmm. who just got shot yeah. uh, with, you know, real-life people, real-life people who were actual people and, um, you know, did all the things that a human being does. So it wasn't enough that they showed up and that they were getting published in a book, um, yeah. but that they they bro they broke stereotypes and um, you know came across as fully formed characters um, who you could identify with even if you weren't from that background. Mm. To accomplish that goal, 
T had to confront the sometimes harrowing challenge of asking one's parents to talk about difficult, traumatic events that they've purposely tried to leave in the past. Where did you guys do the interviews? Like, how did you bring up, <laughs> really you know, the subject? Places. Yeah, um, I was I was living pretty far away from everybody at the time, so it was just during, um, you know, holiday visits and things. So I remember, in particular, there was one Christmas where we were gathered at my sister's house in Palm Springs, and uh, she had just uh, she had built a pool, a little pool in her yard, and the water was filling up for the very first time from a hose, which takes forever. So my sister and me were sitting in the bottom of the pool talking while we were watching the water fill up. (laughs) Um, And it was an interesting, you know, it's it's a really interesting place to put yourself in, like just like almost a a nowhere place, right? It's a great place to um, think about another place in time. Um, Yeah, and being in the desert was, was a far away from anything that we knew or had anything to do with our our family history was an interesting place to interview my father about his life. Um, Definitely added to the feeling of displacement. Yeah. So when you were talking to your family, you know, were there questions that you kind of felt afraid to ask them or subjects you knew were touchy? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, It's sort of the art of war that you have to employ to you know, get people to open up about certain things. Um, so I would use multiple interviews to get at a touchy subject. You know, I would just, I would just listen for the most part and ask, you know, follow up questions. But if it, if it got to something hard, I didn't. I my goal was never to like make anybody cry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I would just, you know, leave it lightly there and and revisit it later with. Um, more questions when I thought of good ones. Sometimes when I feel like I get my mom started on something, she'll be really reluctant. And then after a while, she'll just be telling me like all these things. And Mm -hmm. like, it's interesting because sometimes I feel like she's more open to talking to strangers about things. Like a lot of times when I've heard crazy stories, it's like her telling like a new boyfriend that I've brought home or like my younger sister's friend. And it's like my sister and I have never heard these stories before, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. this is the way that she chooses to tell them. She seems to be more open around people that she doesn't know well. That's something to pick up on. My my mother was the same way. She she gave a much better interview to my husband in English. So that that's how I got her stories was I sat in the back seat of the car while she talked to my husband and I just hit record on my on my uh, recorder. Over various reporting trips this season, I found that it was somehow easier for a lot of people to open up to me, a complete stranger with headphones, recorder and mic in hand, than it was for them to have that same conversation face to face with their very own family. Sometimes talking to someone who doesn't know you or your story can be liberating. Of course, when it comes to your own family, sometimes you just have to start small, with a memory, a tiny detail, and that can trigger the rest. For me, it it helped to um, give myself some time to get closer to them and um, ask them more empathetic questions. So for example, Mm -hmm. like, I find it really hard when somebody asks me, like, you know, what was your greatest trauma or something like from outside of me, because that's not really how I think about my life. Yeah. It's how somebody else would describe my life. So when they ask me questions from their frame of reference, it's really hard for me to answer because mm. I don't know what they want from me. Um, so I learned over time to ask 
uh, my family, how they experienced things, like was it hot or cold? What did they mm. wear? How did they feel? Um, were they hungry? How long, some, how long did something last? Um, and, I, and I found it was a lot easier for them to come up with ready answers when I asked about their lived experience rather than like, rather than asking them to analyze their experience for me. Right. Because the big questions are really hard. Not only are they hard to ask, they're really hard to answer. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine if I were to ever ask my mom, like, you know, what was like the hardest part of coming here and like being far away from everyone that she knew? She She's going like, to have to sift through all yeah. of her memories and then decide. And she'll just probably randomly pick something that she thinks you want to hear. Yeah. She's mm -hmm. just like, I don't know what you mean by that. Like, yeah. I don't know what you want. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because it's like sometimes you people think that those are the most specific questions. Like you're allowing them to pick whatever they want. But people can't really rank their experiences in that way mm -mm. sometimes. No, that's your job as the storyteller. That You listen to all of these things and then you find the story and you, you give it back to them and then they respond to it. So the, the process of actually drawing rough drafts of the chapters was really important because then I would show my parents before I even showed my editor and oftentimes they would remember more or they would, would correct something. My, I mean, my initial impulse was that I would give them veto power if they didn't feel comfortable with anything, but it actually turned out to be a really rich and collaborative process um, where they would appreciate like having their memories put down on paper and then given back to them in a more orderly fashion that, than they remembered it themselves. Sometimes I feel like there's like this anxiety that I have of with being a child of immigrants. Like I want to tell my family's story, but I'm also feeling this pressure of like doing it justice, mm -hmm. you know, and it's hard because I'm like, in some ways I feel like my family's history and their memories are just out of reach and like if only I could access it somehow I would feel more whole or mm -hmm. more complete and it's also like a big task to like be responsible for other people's memories mm -hmm. you know tell memories that are not just your own or like try to talk about something that happened like way before you were born like how like how did you deal with that I, I had a lot of anxiety um when I was a grad student, because uh, my thesis advisor kept quoting Edward Said to me and saying, uh. <laughs> she'd say like, every form of representation is violent. And I was like, oh God, <laughs> you know? Um, Maybe you I mean, don't like I can that. deconstruct <laughs> the violence in other people's representation of Vietnamese uh, people, but like, um, how am I gonna do any better, yeah. right? And, and the thought of doing further violence to my own family and loved ones um, after they've already experienced so, so much violence. Much. Yeah, that was a lot of pressure. Um, and it was uh, at times paralyzing. And I think um, it took a, a really crazy event like giving birth um, to, uh, I guess, push me over the threshold and um, make me realize that, you know, you just have to do it. Like you have to get the baby out one way or another. <laughs> More of producer Jennifer Lai's conversation with graphic novelist T. Bowie after the break.
We know there's a lot going on in the news. China is still struggling to contain the coronavirus. It has been a turbulent year in politics around the world. Smoke darkens the skies above Aleppo's countryside. This fire is burning out of control, and it's just 25 miles from Canberra, Australia's But here's the thing. There are also a lot of compassionate people doing amazing things for others every day. How do you pay someone back who saved your life? I am so incredibly grateful that I need to pay it back to her, but also pay it forward to others. Hear those stories on Kind World, a podcast about how acts of kindness can transform lives. That's Kind World. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome back to this week's bonus episode of Family Ghosts. Let's return to producer Jennifer Lai in conversation with T. Bowie. They're discussing T's 2017 graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do. One of the most remarkable things about T's book is the way it came to be. So I have a very academic thesis project that I did uh, around, you know, representation. But um, as far as collecting the material into something that I could share with a wider public and not just like an, an academic one, um, I always wanted to do it as a comic or a graphic novel. But um, I don't have a background in comics, so I had to, um, I had to learn it on my own. And I wasn't going to go back and do a second master's, so um, <laughs> it took a while. That is so amazing that you were like, you know what, I want to do like a graphic novel or like an illustrated memoir, but I don't have any experience in comics. <laughs> so like, I mean, did you start from just like a blank page and like a pen or did you? Well, I'd, I, I did major in art in undergraduate, so I knew how to draw and I'd, I've always written since I was a kid, um, even though the irony is that I, I did so well in English uh, as, a, as, a, as a younger student that I tested out of all of my English requirements, so I never took a writing uh-huh. class again. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I read a lot and I, and, I, and I wrote a lot, so I figured kind of arrogantly looking back on it that I figured I could teach myself how to do comics, but um, comics are a really hard medium. It turns out like it's, you know, they're so fun and easy to read, but really hard to make. So 10, 12 years later, I am totally humbled and um, in awe of the medium. Um, and And I like to tell people that cartoonists are like the floor tile layers of, of artists and storytellers. Like if they do their job well, you just walk right over it and you don't notice all of the work. But if they don't do something well, you trip up and you notice. Looking at the book, you'd never know that T learned to do comics on her own, or that she was completely nude in the medium when she started over a decade ago. The day I got T's memoir, I started reading it immediately when I got home, and I stayed up all night. I was lost in both the gorgeous art and the narrative that felt so personal and so deeply lived. Thinking back on that night now, I know why I couldn't put it down. Sometimes a complicated story needs more than just words. I wondered if T herself felt like she'd done what she set out to, to bridge the gap between the past and present. Yeah, I think that it worked with with my dad and um, my mom is a woman and, and, and I'm a woman and it's much more complicated. Yeah. But I think, yeah, in a lot of ways it, it, it did. Um, you know, we know so much more, I know so much more than I did before. I think I suppose I was hoping for more reciprocity mm. in terms of understanding um, 
and maybe that's just another that's another process. I feel like in some ways it's kind of like a Western way of thinking, like wanting to know this big story. I don't know if that's something that you ever thought about or whether or not that resonates with you, but I've always kind of felt at odds with like my Chinese self and my American self. Like I feel like I look at things in a very Western way sometimes, mm. but I but I'm like living in this kind of hyphenated world <laughs> with my mom where her experiences growing up are pretty different because she operates with her parents differently but like yeah. me growing up here watching tv and like seeing my white friends with their moms say I love you you know being dropped off for school was like no biggie but right. they knew their parents story they knew where their parents worked and how they got to be and how they came to be. But it always just seemed more complicated when it came to me. It is more complicated. I don't know that it fits neatly into a binary of Western versus Eastern. Mm-hmm. Um, in my experience, um, I think my father also had a hard time talking about practical daily things. So mm. um, you know, even though I write about being terrified of my father growing up um, and being distant from him for a long time. Actually, we're a lot alike in the things that we like to talk about. Um, Mm. So he and I actually spent a lot of quality time working on this book together. Um, I kind of miss that, actually. (laughs) And he's he's actually snuck a couple of I love yous in uh, since the book. So I feel like, I don't know, he and I have maybe come out on the other side pretty good whereas my mother and I still butt heads I mean hopefully we've got a little time to work to figure it out but like in the meantime I made them a book so hey um, if that's not love what is <laughs> right? I don't know what I that hope, could be I hope they see it <laughs> one of the things that fascinates me most about T's work is that it's both an artistic document and a personal one she's taken her life and her family's lives and turned them into a story in hopes that it'll have an effect on people But how has that process affected her? You know, going around and you're doing this book tour and you're talking about your book, but it's not just a book, it's also like your family's experience. Is it tiring to be doing that all the time? Like, do you feel like the process of doing this has been like emotionally challenging or do you feel like you've become numb to it? I have a really hard time gaming the system, you know, because I'm, I'm just so uh, earnest and <laughs> it's so it's actually something I'm trying to hang on to. So I think it would behoove me to become a little bit more hardened and, you know, seasoned at, at interviews. But the thing is that um, I actually like to have a real conversation. I don't like to have prepared statements, um, yeah. even though that's the advice that's been given to me. Um, and so it is, it is emotionally exhausting um, when I've been on tour for a while because I'm actually trying to have a genuine conversation with each person. Yeah. Um, and then in the work, I think that it needs to be honest. And so uh, my goal is always to strip away language that has been overused in the news and to try to um, not hide from the news, but actually like really go deep deeply into the into the subject matter and try to find new language new forms of expression to keep fighting against the you know that cynicism that can grow on your heart when you're reading about things that are really painful we 
harden ourselves through language. Um, the word refugee, the word detainee, the word immigrant, even the word family, the phrase family separation, which like actually elicits a lot of response in people now, I guarantee you in six months, it's gonna become a catchphrase. So I think the work of artists and writers is to constantly push against that, that um, tendency in people to keep reinventing language so that um, we keep the wounds raw as they should be um, so that we can actually do something. That was producer Jennifer Lai with author T. Bowie. Find T's graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, wherever books are sold. Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday? Wild Card Wednesday. This so Wild Card Wednesday. This so Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. This so Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Ghost Family, for this week's Wild Card Wednesday segment, I'd like to introduce you to a man you almost met in our first season, a man named Bob. Bob's granddaughter Jordan pitched us a story last year that we really wanted to help her tell. A story that began in the early days of the 20th century with a roadside murder in the Old West and featured real cowboys, a haunted winery, and the parts of Central California that John Steinbeck called the Pastures of Heaven. Unfortunately, Bob passed away just as we were getting started with the story, so we didn't get very far. But Bob had a long and legendary life, including the story he told in this little piece of the episode which I hope we get to finish someday. This is my grandpa who has, I told you, my grandpa with all the tattoos. <laughs> yes, I remember that. And he, like, my dad visited him in the hospital, and he was like, oh, dad, do you have, like, a bunch of bruises? Or, like, what's going on? Are you okay? And he's like, oh, no. Uh, I just I went down to Indian ink tattoo, and I got myself some new tattoos. And my dad was like... Oh, he got the tattoos recently? Oh, yeah, like, recently. And one of them says in Spanish... Like, the greatest gift in my life is mi esposa Francesca, who's his wife. My, my step-grandmother, Grand Fran. And then um, he has another one that says, live like you're dying. Last winter, Jordan interviewed Bob about his life, during which she uncovered the mystery that we're investigating for our episode. But she also learned a bit more about Bob's philosophy on life, as illustrated by this incident from a steer roping competition that he entered with his friend Jimmy Violini. We were at a rodeo uh, or on roping down in King City with Jimmy Violini, and and we were I was healing for him. I was a heel, a heel for him. Meaning that you... I roped the back, the back two, legs. two my hind legs. Mm -hmm. And the first steer, I, we were, I roped pretty good and got lucky, I guess, and, and we were leading it. And, and the second steer came out, and he turned him and I roped two feet, and 
and I, I, I dropped a coil somewhere and I dallied right over my thumb. My thumb came off. And, and the flagger, he saw that I lost my thumb and he was like this. He was kind of paralyzed. <laughs> and the thumb came out and the, 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 the tendon stayed on it and the thumb was in my lap, my hand. And, so then Bailini says, what happened? He says, I said, oh, I had cut my thumb off. And Jimmy says, well, don't drop it. He says, well, these dogs may get it. <laughs> so uh, we went to the hospital, and they said, that, well, they could medevac me, fly me to San Francisco. for." I said, well, what was that going to cost? Well, that was going to cost $1,500. I said, well, the hell with that. I said, just cut it off. <laughs> That's too much money. Yeah. I got enough fingers as it is. Yeah. Bob never got the thumb fixed. Someone whose motto is live like you're dying doesn't have time to waste on things like that. The same night this happened, in fact, Bob was ready to move on, as Jordan learned later in the conversation from her grandma Fran, the one from the tattoo. So I am in Monterey with my sister and brother-in-law, and we're supposed to meet him at this Mexican restaurant. And he calls and says, I may be a little late. I had an accident, and he said, I'm over here at the hospital. I said, oh my gosh, I'll meet you at home. No, no, I'll be fine. He came, joined us at this restaurant with his arm held up like this over his head so that he could eat. Yes. Without a thumb, had just lost a thumb. Could you imagine the pain? And this man is sitting there having dinner. He said, I'm fine. Can you cut my food for me? I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a hard time cutting food, did I? Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lai, Lindsay Cradwell, and Jacob Smith. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. Our managing producer is Mia Lobel and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks this week to T. Bowie and Jordan Bell. Our Wildcard Wednesday theme is by Evan Viola and Dave Van Ronk, featuring the vocal stylings of Shamaya Williams, Jacob Smith, Nicole Bunsis, Lori Tobiasen, Lindsay Cradwell, Shelby Jordan, and Emily Mulholland. If you're anywhere near Brooklyn, please join us at our live show at the Bell House on September 13th. Tickets are available at our website, familyghosts.panoply.fm And finally, breaking news, the next Family Ghost bonus episode is not a month away, but just two weeks from today. That's right. Two weeks from today in this very feed, our next Family Ghost bonus episode featuring producer Odelia Rubin and Hubby Jenkins from the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Until then, thank you as always, Ghost Family, for tuning in. Hey, y'all. I'm Jean-Yal Kastner, and I've got a new podcast called Untitled Dad Project. Yes, that's the title. Because here's the deal. I never knew the story of why my dad wasn't in my life. Then I decided to reach out to him only to have him die on my birthday before I could send him anything. But that's not what Untitled Dad Project is about. This podcast is about grieving. It's about creating. It's about reckoning with your dad character. It's about finally figuring out your own story, even if you have to write it yourself. Untitled Dad Project. We'll figure out a title once we figure out my story. 
Chapters drop every Monday. Follow us on Instagram at Untitled Dad Project and subscribe now.